There are very few things that the major political parties in our country can agree on, even issues that really should command some level of agreement, like the COVID pandemic that has affected us all for the past year and a half, still seem to meet with opposition from one party or the other. And though these debates continue, at least when it comes to COVID, our government has taken some action to try to avert the all-out catastrophe that a lot of uh, scientists predicted and projected might happen. But there is another issue that's lurking just around the corner, and many people believe it's just as dangerous, if not more dangerous, than a pandemic. When you take a look at the wildfires that are out of control in the country's west, uh, droughts all over the world, hurricanes that are growing more numerous and more powerful every season, and natural resources that seem to grow more scarce and more expensive by the day, climate change really commands that same need for collective action that COVID needed. But will it get it? I'm Clay Aiken, and this week, Politicon welcomes atmospheric scientist, climate expert, and the author of the book, Saving Us, a climate scientist's case for hope and healing in a divided world. Catherine Hayhoe is our guest this week, and she'll be with us to discuss the danger, the need for change, and how we can get our people and our politicians working together to find solutions. Because whether you live in the beach, at the forests, or in the heart of our cities, taking action to defeat our common threats requires people of every party. So how the heck are we going to get along? How are you? I am good. How are you doing? Um, I am interested in you educating me because I will admit, um, as liberal as I am on some, so many other things, um, I don't know that I'm educated enough about climate change. Um, and, and I actually ask myself why. I was thinking today, you know, I try to t- pay a lot of attention to everything on the news, um, but as, as, I was, as I was preparing for, for today's, this week's episode, I was thinking, gosh, I, I'm just not really up to speed on so much of this topic. And it's really, I mean, it's, it's talked about everywhere. So what's my problem, I guess, is what I need to find out before we're done today. Um, it, it, it's climate change over the last several years, especially, has really gotten a lot more media attention, a lot more focus. Um, I noticed this past week, Germany had uh, new elections for its new chancellor for the first time in 16 years. Angela Merkel is leaving. And the Green Party, which is really the the party that's really focused on climate change, got one of its biggest returns in history. So people, especially young people, are very much paying attention to it. And maybe I'm just not young anymore, Catherine. What's going on with me? I'm not paying attention enough. Why has it gotten so much more attention recently? Well, you are not alone, first of all. So in the U.S., only 14% of people, according to a new survey that just came out last week, talk about this. And when they ask people, especially people who are most concerned about climate change, they say, well, do you know why it's happening? You know what most people say? They say it's plastic pollution or maybe the ozone hole. And plastic pollution is a problem. And the ozone hole was a big problem that's, thank goodness, getting better. But that's not why climate is changing. So you are not alone. We need to talk about what this thing is and why it matters. But the reason why it's on on so many headlines today is because 
It's here and it is now. We are seeing crazy wildfires burning greater area. We're seeing supersized hurricanes and record-breaking heat waves and massive rainfalls and floods. Wherever you live, things are just getting Yeah, weird. I mean, I don't disagree with that. I'm, I live in Hurricane Alley to some degree over here on the East Coast. And, uh, you know, we're already finished with all the letters again this year for the second time in a row. I think we got one more before we, before we run out of letters. I don't remember that happening any times in my life except for last year. So it is happening more. But, I, you know, I guess I want to, I, I think we always tend to lump people into one of two categories, or at least when I watch the news, I see people being lumped into one of two categories, either people who are urgently um, attentive to the climate change crisis or climate deniers, climate change deniers. So either you are on board and you believe and know that climate change is happening and it needs to be addressed immediately, or you're a climate change denier. And I personally think that's not fair because I absolutely believe climate change is real and I believe that it needs to be addressed. But I don't know that I fit into the category where it, where it affects my vote as the number one priority. So tell me why it should. Well, you're right. The two categories we hear the most from are the two categories at the opposite ends of the spectrum. The people who are absolutely convinced that this is a hoax and the people who are absolutely convinced that every single thing we do needs to be about climate change. And those two groups are the smallest <laughs> groups. Most of us are in the middle. And so we just feel like we're caught between these two, you know, extremes and we don't know what to do. We don't know why it matters. And so that is what I do as a climate scientist. That is literally why I wrote that, that new book I just wrote, Saving Us. It's because climate change affects every single one of us. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you live. And it really doesn't matter where you fall in the political spectrum. Because a wildfire does not knock on your door and ask who you voted for for president before it burns right, down your Right, but if you house. live in California, and I'm just going to play devil's advocate because, I, I, again, I want to be clear. Sure. I absolutely know that climate change is real. And I think, like you just said, so many people around me, I don't really know any climate change deniers. Um, you know, there are people on the denial side who <laughs> will excuse it in some way. But I don't know climate change deniers. We all acknowledge that it is happening. But I think a lot of people don't understand the urgency to it and why in the past five or six or ten years even um, it has become so much the cause celeb, so to speak. So break it down for us from the very beginning. It's not about plastics. It's not about the ozone hole that we learned about in the 80s and 90s. What is causing it now? What's causing our planet to warm is the fact that since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, so I'm talking like 1800s and even further back, we've been digging up more and more coal and then oil and then natural gas and then burning it. When we burn fossil fuels, it releases heat-trapping gases that are building up in the atmosphere. And our planet already has an amazing natural blanket of heat-trapping gases that keeps us just the perfect temperature. Is that the ozone life. layer or no? Because, okay, I'm, being, no. I'm going to play stupid because I am stupid. So, so what's causing, <laughs> what's causing <laughs> that stuff to trap in? Break it all the way down for me. These heat-trapping gases are carbon dioxide and methane. 
And what happens is the sun's energy shines down and goes through that blanket like a window. It hits the earth and the earth heats up. And just like your body gives off heat, and when you're at night, you've got a blanket on and that blanket traps your body heat and keeps you warm. In the same way, this natural blanket of heat trapping gases traps our our earth's heat and keeps us 60 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than we would be otherwise. Or we would literally be a frozen ball of ice if we didn't have this amazing natural blanket. So what's the problem? The problem is by digging up and burning coal and gas and oil, we are wrapping an extra blanket around the planet that it does not need. And just like if someone snuck into your room at night and put an extra heavy blanket on you and you'd wake up going, hey, I didn't need this, I'm sweating. That's why our planet is running a fever. So talk to me about historical historical trends. Um, I've read in places that over the past 100 years, the sea level has risen X amount. Over the past 100 years, the average temperature on Earth has gone up by Y amount. Um, and those numbers, to a lot of people, probably don't seem as dramatic as they really are when you look at it from a scientific perspective. What are those numbers? So over the last how many years, the average temperature has gone up by how much? Over the last century, the average temperature has gone up by two degrees Fahrenheit. And most people say, well, big deal. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because the average temperature of the whole planet over the history of human civilization is as stable as that of the human body. So over the course of a day, your temperature and my temperature and everybody's temperature goes up and down by a few tenths of a degree. If you ever measure it, I've done it a few times. It's kind of interesting. You can see it. Oh, yes. My son always thinks that that one-tenth is going to keep him from having to go to school. (laughs) Oh, that's right. You know it. (laughs) I know. I have a son who's very attached to that (laughs) thermometer, too. Uh, So here's the thing. The temperature of the whole planet has gone up and down by those same few tenths of a degree over the whole course of human civilization as we know it. But now it's gone up two degrees. That is more than we have ever seen as long as we humans have had our civilization, our agriculture, our food, our cities, all of that stuff is built on the assumption of a stable climate. So what happens if your son's temperature goes up two degrees? Of course, he then does get to stay home from school, right? <laughs> but but what do you say to the people who say, okay, the average temperature, uh, the average high temperature for the summer in, in Birmingham, Alabama is 90 five degrees as the highest temperature in Birmingham, Alabama during any given year. If I live a hundred years, then the average high temperature would be 97. I can live with that. Two degrees in my 100 year lifetime is not that much. What's your response to that? Unfortunately, that is not what is happening because this two-degree increase in the average temperature of the whole planet is loading our weather dice against us. So wherever you live, it's as if you have, you know, imagine you have a pair of dice and we always have a chance of rolling a double six. That's a crazy heat wave, a flood, a wildfire, a hurricane, whatever, right? And honestly, if anybody lives in Texas, we already have three sixes on our dice in Texas. (laughs) Texas gets more of this crazy weather than any other state in the country. And in fact, where I live in Lubbock, Texas, the last time the Weather Channel had a crazy weather competition, 
Lubbock went up against Fairbanks, Alaska, and Fargo, North Dakota, and it oh. won. <laughs> so, Congratulations, I guess. That's probably it, not something you're proud of. Well, but yeah. <laughs> the same year, it also won Most Boring City in America from a Realtors <laughs> Association. So let's not congratulate yeah, ourselves. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is Anyways. we're essentially taking the ones off of the dice and and— you and now it. we don't even have a chance to roll snake eyes because we don't even have the low numbers anymore. You're totally right. And not only that, but we, wherever we live now, we all have three or even four sixes on our dice and a couple of sevens. So, you know, city of Houston, three 500-year flood events in three years. And you're like, how can that happen? Climate and change talk to me about the fact that, okay, in Birmingham, Alabama, in Lubbock, Texas, in Raleigh, North Carolina, two degrees in our lifetime might not make a huge difference. We, Lubbock's a little bit, Lubbock's probably about the same same level uh, north and south as Raleigh is. Um, we probably are used to hot weather in the summer. We can deal with two more degrees, but it's also getting hotter at the, at the poles of the earth too, right? And two degrees means a lot more there than it does here, correct? It does, but again, the two degrees is the average temperature of the whole planet. Our heat waves are getting a lot warmer. Remember last summer, eight, 118 degrees in Portland. 118. That's not a two degree increase. <laughs> but that's a lot of like people are going to say, well, increase. again, that's just one of those that's one of those freakish heat waves, and it doesn't happen every year. And it was news. It was news because it happened. If it happened often, we wouldn't be talking about it. It was big news because it never has happened before and might not again. But unfortunately, it will because scientists have calculated, we're able to put numbers on this, that that heat wave that hit the western part of North America this summer was 150 times more likely because of our warmer climate. Okay, so let's assume you can convince me that this is a problem that I need to address right now. Again, playing devil's advocate. It's such a big one. And I hear that it's such a big one from you and from the news media and from social media and everywhere else that at some point, don't I start thinking, well, hell, there's nothing I can do about it. So, you know what? I'll live my life out. I'll be dead before the sea comes all the way to Charlotte. And, you know, I just won't have any more. I'll ask my kids not to have grandkids, you know, like, is there a, is there a point that climate scientists also have to be sociologists as well, and figure out how you can get people to care about something that's not going to affect their life during their lifetime? Well, totally. Uh, because here we have this existential crisis that could, you know, threaten civilization as we know it. That's what's at risk. The planet's still going to go on long after we're gone. The question is, what's going to happen to us? Well, that's, that's all we care about, right? We and all care about like, what's going to happen to us and our loved yeah. ones. And beyond that, you know, I, I hope my great-great-grandkids are wonderful people, but I'll never meet them, so I don't care. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And so, and, and then we're like, okay, what can I do? And people are like, well, change your light bulbs and eat less meat. But is that the answer? And... Well, clearly not. I mean, if changing our light bulbs and recycling and eating less meat is going to save the world, that seems like a pretty small solution for a pretty big problem. And we instinctively realize the disconnect. I'm like, if that's not going to do it, then what else am I supposed to do? And if there's nothing else I can do, who cares? Right. Eat, drink, and be merry well, for tomorrow. Well, I mean, I, I went electric right? this year. Um, I have an electric car mm -hmm. now. But my understanding from reading 
obviously on the internet, but if more than one or two sources, so I do my best to get good sources, is that there there is a lot of there is a lot of carbon pollution that goes into powering the energy that goes to cars. So are all of the solutions that we're coming up with right now that that automakers are coming up with that um, energy pro- producers are coming up with are they effective even at, at making a dent in what we're what we need to do? They are, because even today, if you have an electric vehicle, no matter what state you're in, we use a lot less coal than we used to, and so it is better than it was. Now, I actually have solar panels, so I plug Uh my car in and charge it with my solar panels. But even that isn't enough to fix the whole problem, uh, because we need system-wide change. And why do we need that change? It's not because I think climate change needs to be higher on our priority list. So let me just ask you as an example. If you had a numbered list of priorities for you, yeah. be totally honest, and I'm pretty <laughs> sure you will be, what, what number would you put climate change uh, on I haven't on thought about it. Um, it would be tough, though, to get it into crack. I mean, let's see if i got to think about it. It would, it would be hovering around five or six, probably, without me thinking about it. And I think that it's probably lower for other people. Um, I don't think it, it, I mean, for younger generations who I think believe or have been led to believe that if you're 18 years old today, in your lifetime, it will affect you more. I think that it might be a higher number. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm guessing. But, you know, 40 and up, I'll be dead before before there's a problem. So I think it's probably lower for, for older generations and I mean, what have you found? Well, I'm going to tell you where it is on my list. And this might be kind of shocking because mm-hmm. I'm a climate scientist, right? So this is what I do with my life. It's not, not at on all. my list. Not I mean, at all. I, listen, Zero. I said five no or place. six, but that's, that was a guess. I don't know how long your list is. I'm hoping it's not as long as mine <laughs> if you don't have it on your list. But, oh, it, but, but it doesn't affect your day-to-day well, life, right? I mean, it... it no, that's that's exactly oh, the opposite oh. of what I'm saying. So what I'm saying is climate change is not on my priority list at all because I don't care if the whole planet is warming up by two, three, five, or even 10 degrees if that's the only thing that happens. If that was all that happened, it'd be like, oh, a scientific curiosity. The only reason I care about climate change is because it literally is affecting me, us, people I love today. It affects my son's future. It is affecting the poorest and most vulnerable people in the world right now. I mean, it has already increased the gap between the richest and poorest people in the world by as much as 25%, and that's already happened. It is already fueling crazy winter storms like the one we got in Texas, and it was the lowest-income neighborhoods that had the power outages for the longest, who didn't have insulated homes, who had broken windows, who couldn't afford a generator. That already happened. It's already causing $5 billion of crop losses per year, most of those in the poorest countries in the world. So it sounds like it's, you're telling me it's not on your list because it's too late. So, but it's, I mean, you have, such a, you have such a positive disposition as we talk here, but it sounds like you think we're already screwed. Well, to a certain extent, we are because the impacts are here. I mean, it's as if, if we were smokers, it's as if we've been smoking a pack of cigarettes a day for weeks and even years, and we have impaired breathing capacity, we have some spots on our lungs, but we don't have emphysema, we don't have lung cancer, and we're not dead. 
So when is the best time to stop? As soon as possible. How much? As much as possible, because we will be better off. Is it reparable? Because I think there's also a difference between stop smoking and you're still going to die sooner than you would have had you not smoked in the first place. But in that situation, you're probably not going to be able to build your lungs back so that you have an opportunity for a longer life, right? Um, and at some point, do you get to a, do some people perhaps get to a place where they say, you know what, I'm already going to die of a heart attack, so I'm just going to continue to eat my cheeseburgers from McDonald's every day because it's more enjoyable, because it's less because it's less expensive. I mean, how costly is it to do the things we need to do to just stop? the downslide. We're not even in a position, correct me if I'm wrong, to where we're able to turn the clock back and cool the planet off, are we? Are there, are there methods available to cool it, to stop climate change and global warming and actually cool the planet off? Well, we're very fortunate because the lungs of the planet can be restored. And by the lungs of the planet, I mean, our, I mean nature. Okay, talk me through it, because that sounds like it's got to be just as hard then as, uh, (laughs) it sounds like it's got to be just as hard as stopping. (laughs) Well, let me tell you, first of all, about the cost of climate change. So I already talked about some of the things that have already happened, and I want to share one more thing, and that is that burning fossil fuels, so coal and gas and oil, it doesn't produce only heat-trapping gases, it also produces air pollution. You know that smog that you see sitting over the city? Air pollution is responsible for almost 9 million premature deaths a year. 9 million. We're at about 4.5 million around the, year, around the world from COVID so far. Double that every year from air pollution. And you just think about that. How can we afford to keep burning fossil fuels? I mean, that is just absolutely astronomical. And of course, there are people who've decided, I just want to keep on doing it. And they are the 90 companies who are responsible for two-thirds of the problem. 90 companies are responsible for two-thirds of it. And 9 million people are dying prematurely every year from the air pollution. So you know what? For, for Just for ourselves and our lives and our kids who are breathing this stuff in, it makes all the sense in the world to act now and invest in nature. So I'm, I'm actually a chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy, and it works in 70 different countries around the world restoring nature. Because when you take forests and grasslands and mangroves and coastal wetlands and you restore them, they clean up the air, they clean up the water, they protect us from storm surge, and they also store carbon. And carbon in the soil and carbon in plants and trees is good. Carbon in the atmosphere, bad. Carbon in the plants and soil, good. So they actually help to suck some of that carbon out of the atmosphere. And so that's why it isn't just about cutting our carbon emissions into the atmosphere. It's about helping nature, working it's, with nature. It sounds to suck like it there's out. a there's a big role then, not so much for me and you as a consumer, as an individual and a and a not I'm not saying there isn't a role for us in, in improving it, but it's you said ninety percent of it is caused. Did I hear that correctly? Is caused by companies, or you said ninety companies are in, are the cause of the majority of pollution in general? Ninety companies, two thirds of the pollution since the beginning of the so, industrial so era. The solution to that then is pressure on those particular companies and others like them who are 
you know, number 95 and 6 and whatnot to reduce their carbon footprint. But there seems to be, it's, it seems to me, like a lot of companies are going what they say they call carbon neutral, are, are making efforts to do some of these things. I'm guessing that those companies that are going carbon neutral, like Google and Facebook, are probably not the big polluters, though, are they? The big polluters are primarily the oil and gas companies that pr- dig up refine, process, and sell We're never going to stop them from doing it because that's how they make money, Catherine. (laughs) So what's the solution there? Well, so that's why when we talk about this issue and people are like, okay, light bulbs, uh, you know, electric cars, solar panels, all of those things are great. Don't get me wrong, right? I mean, you've got an electric car, I've got an electric car, but what's going to change the world? So here's what I did. I was like, okay, what has changed the world before? Because think back 200 years ago, we had an economy based on the incredibly horrifying idea that you could own another human being and benefit off their labor, right? What changed? Did the biggest slave owners wake up one day and decide, oh, I have to free my slaves? No. Did the president of the United States just wake up one day out of the blue and say, I'm going to, you know, write the Emancipation Proclamation? No. We went to war first. I would rather, I'd love to try to think we could solve this one without having to go to war, though, please. Me too. I'm going to, so I'm Canadian, so let's go the British way. The British way, there was no war, okay? (laughs) What happened was really ordinary people, not famous people, not big people, not rich people, really ordinary people said, you know what? The world shouldn't be this way. The world has to change. And the same thing happened with civil rights. The same thing happened with apartheid. The same thing happened with women getting the vote. The same thing happened with LGBTQ rights. Really ordinary people decided, you know what? I'm going to do what I can in my personal life, of course, but I am also going to use my voice. I'm going to stand up and say, we need change. I'm going to talk to other people about why we need change. We're going to get together and talk to the place where we work and say, what can we do? I'm going to talk to the university or the college I'm at and say, what can we do? I'm going to talk to our city and say, hey, cities can do a lot, a lot more faster than the state or the country. And of course, I'm going to talk to my elected officials too. But that is the way the world changed before. And that's the way it has to change Do you think that those activists who are following the advice you just gave already. Do they do anything that frustrates you? Do you think that they're, that the message is being delivered in the most effective way or are there, are there messenger? I don't want you to call out anybody in particular, but are there messengers (laughs) um, or messages or strategies that are being used that you think are not effective that frustrate you? There absolutely are. And I'm starting to suspect you follow me on Twitter because I just went no, off No, I actually don't. But I always want to see if someone ha- – I always like to see if people think that the argument that they want to get across is being sold in a bad way. Because I, I come down on my own Democrat Party a lot because I wish they would do better in some ways. And I think that we are more effective when we challenge those we agree with so that our own team – moves forward in the best way possible. And I don't know that all the time in, in today's society, people are of the same mindset very often. I think it gets, <laughs> I think we, I get more crap from my own progressive side of the aisle because I criticize 
you know, I don't think you're selling this very well. I'm living around these people who disagree with you and the way you're talking about it and getting the message across. So do you find that you feel the same way in, in that regard any time and why? What, what arguments or, or messaging strategies do you wish were done differently? I feel that way, absolutely, because the more worried people get, and honestly, if you see what's happening to this world, you get worried. But the more worried people get and the more afraid they get, the more they start to guilt other people, to point fingers, to judge other people. Um, So I I actually set a clock the other day on Twitter. I said, okay, it's 8 a.m. I'm going to set a three-hour timer, and I'm going to count how many people personally shame me for not doing one of their 10 green commandments. Everybody has oh, their own I set of 10 green commandments. I wish a motherfucker would come to me and tell me, give me shame for not doing one of their green commandments. Lord of mercy. I wish they would. You can take I was over about my to say, I can't, if, 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 if you're getting sh- from people, I know I would. So, what are the things that you're not doing right? Well, that's the thing is everybody, because, and again, this is coming from mm-hmm. a place of fear. We're afraid. And so we just, instead of, instead of doing everything we can to change the system, we just look at the person next to us and we're like, did you get yeah. on an airplane? You are a horrible person right. and this whole thing is your fault. Did you have a child? Even worse. Don't you know that bringing new people into this world is the problem? Did you ever have a right. hamburger? Shame on you. You are never going to be part of the solution. And so I got shamed for writing a book. I got shamed for talking about climate change. Having it printed on real paper, I'm sure, right? (laughs) Yeah, real recycled paper. Um, I got shamed for not telling people that nuclear was the solution or stopping stopping driving cars was the solution. And you know what? That is never going to fix it. This is not some purity test. We are not a bunch of Puritans in, Ma- in, in Massachusetts burning people at the stake if they don't obey our Ten Commandments. We have to fix this with everyone. We need system change. And I was giving a talk last night, and somebody said, well, how do I tell someone that they should stop flying? And how do I tell someone that they shouldn't have so many children? And you, you know shouldn't. what I said? I said, you don't. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Stop. Don't. <laughs> I, mean, I will say that, that, you know, one of the things, it's not been just today. Obviously, I've known you've been coming on for several days, so I've been paying a little bit more attention, trying to learn a little bit more so I don't completely sound stupid. Um, and I have noticed more and more this week and the weeks over this past year that even the messaging on the news Everything gets tied back into climate change somehow. And I'll admit there have been times when even a normal news story that probably is only tangentially related to climate change gets tagged with this is the cause of climate. And I'll have to admit there's sometimes where I feel like I'm being preached to a little bit. Like I, I'm, I'm with you. And so it's fine for me, but I know members of my family or members of my community who, are, who don't vote for the same people I do, and I know they turn the channel when they feel preached to. Is there a way to get the message across without ostracizing those people who are maybe convincible, but not if you tell them they're wrong? What strategy, beyond just saying, don't tell them not to fly— what what do you find yeah. to be effective uh, things to do versus not just things not to do? Well, judging someone never goes well. When somebody judges you, I mean, I tell in the book a story about how somebody once said, you know, every time you turn on a car, you're sinning. <laughs> and my response was, oh, really? 
<laughs> you know, I live somewhere where there is no public transportation. So you're saying, when I take my child to the doctor, I'm sinning. When I go to work to, you know, to, to do my job, I'm sinning. I just wanted to go out to the parking lot, find the biggest Hummer I could, and it was in yeah, Texas, so I probably could, find. and just sort of drive circles around. I'm going, sinning, <laughs> I'm sinning. <laughs> I mean, we all are like that in, nowadays, yes. in, uh, not just climate change arguments, but all political arguments. Arguing with someone, pushing them into a corner, makes them swing. Mm -hmm. People don't don't give in when they get backed into a corner or made to feel guilty. So how do you coax them out of the corner? Here's how we do it. You start with something you agree on, not something you disagree on. You start from the heart rather than the head. So let me give you an example. We actually tried this in real life. So I got together with a two-term Republican congressman, Bob Inglis from South Carolina, who he's on board now with climate change because of his son. His son was like, Dad, I'm old enough to vote now, but, and I agree with most of what you say, but you got to take another look at climate change. Because it was his son, he did, and he changed oh. his mind, and he lost yeah. his seat because of that. <laughs> But he runs a free market institute now on free market solutions on climate change. So Bob made a one-minute video on free market climate solutions. Then we got a libertarian to make a one-minute video on personal liberties and how climate impacts are infringing on our personal liberties. Then we got an Air Force general to make a video about national security and how climate change is a threat multiplier according to the military. And then I'm a Christian, so they got me to make a video about how if you just open the Bible to Genesis 1, it says that God gave us responsibility over every living thing on this planet, and we're supposed to care for and love each other, especially the poorest and most vulnerable who are most affected by climate change. So each of us made these one-minute short video where we started with free market values, personal liberties and libertarian values, Christian values, and military values. They aired these videos, a bunch of researchers at Yale, they aired these videos on social media in a couple of different districts. And they didn't track who watched it. They just aired them on social media. But they tracked Republicans' opinions on climate change, whether they thought it mattered and whether they supported climate solutions. And guess what? They went up. By using arguments that appealed to them instead of the gloom and doom, is that the right way? Is that the right terminology? Instead of the don't do this, more positive messaging is what you're saying. Gloom, doom, and guilt. Right, guilt doesn't work. Right. No. What works is saying, okay, so you want, you like the free market? All right. If you are really in support of the free market, you should be outraged that fossil fuels are subsidized to the tune of $600 billion (laughs) a year. And did you know that there's all of these great solutions? If you're a libertarian, you should be outraged that fossil fuel pollution is affecting your health and your property value and your insurance rates. If you have military experience, you should care that the military is really worried about this issue because it is literally putting American lives in danger. And so when you approach it like that, people are like, well, yes, I respect the military. I support a free market. I'm very concerned about my personal liberties or, you know, I am a Christian. And they're like, Wow, I never knew it, but it turns out I'm the perfect person to care. It's not about me becoming a Democrat. Who I already am is the perfect person to care. You know, I I also thought this week a little bit about the fact that this is not the first time in my life where environmental, I guess, environmental strategies or changes in how we, we treat the environment have been on the forefront of the the media landscape, so to speak. I 
can vividly remember that in the 80s, there were huge campaigns, media campaigns about littering. And the idea that, you know, in the 70s, open up your window, throw your shit out the window. Nobody cared. It just really wasn't a big deal. And now, just the idea of spitting your gum out the window if you're driving, anybody has their mind blown by it. Doesn't matter where they fall on the political spectrum. Just littering is so taboo. We got to, for however many years, we they drilled that into us on public service announcements on TV, littering became an absolute hell no. In the 90s, you know, I don't think that anybody in my life knew what recycling was or understood anything about recycling until the 90s. And then all of a sudden, they started sending us this tiny little bucket that we would put our newspapers in and we were taught. how. And now I don't know anyone who doesn't have a recycling bin separately. My 75-year-old mother recycles religiously. And if you don't have a recycling bin in your house, you're almost like, what's wrong with you? Those two causes, littering, recycling, were incredibly effective and more so than this climate change one. What did they do right that Mm -hmm. is not being done right here? They changed our social norms. They changed our perception of what is acceptable, like you just said. It used to be completely acceptable to open your window and toss a huge sack of, you know, take it out the window. And now if somebody does it, you're like, where did you grow up? And so in the same way, we're seeing our social norms change and our individual behavior, you know how I was just talking about how our individual behavior won't be enough to fix climate change, but it is enough to flip our social norms and to make people who care more, be involved more, and then use their own voices more too. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example. Solar panels. It turns out that the number one predictor of whether you have solar panels on your house is if somebody else has them within a mile of where you live. Well, uh, it's well, maybe, but there's somebody down the street from me, literally within less than a third of a mile, who's got them, and they just put them on the front of their house, and they're so ugly, and nobody else has done it. So you're going to have to come over <laughs> here, Catherine, and show us how to do it without it being tacky looking, <laughs> because I think that that's a priority for folks, I, too. We, we put ours on the okay. side of the so house. So you can't see them from the street. <laughs> nice like, it's a lot ball. over here. I want to get to a few questions from folks um, who have written in um, because we got some good ones. This is, some, this is a topic that people are very, very passionate about on both sides. Liz from Long Beach, California. Why are the Paris Climate Accords so controversial? It's her question, but it's mine too because I don't know. Okay. Well, um, honestly, as a scientist, I don't know why they're controversial because they're simply the fact that every country in the world got together and said, look, we already agreed in 1992, so 25 years before Paris, we agreed to prevent dangerous human interference with the climate system. It took us 25 years of arguing to figure out what dangerous is. We finally decided somewhere around two degrees Celsius, which is three and a half degrees Fahrenheit, that's where hell breaks loose on a pretty general scale around the world. I'm talking about disasters, famines, droughts, huge economic impacts, all kinds of stuff like that. So let's do everything we can to keep it below that level. And if possible, below one and a half degrees, unfortunately, we're already at 1.1 degrees, so we're getting pretty close to that threshold, because the science is clear, every bit of warming matters. The lower we go, the better we off. off we are. So why is it controversial? It's controversial because people don't want to do it. 
And if you don't want to do it, the first thing you say is you try to make it into a controversy so you don't have to do it. You're a parent. I'm a parent. What do our kids do when they don't want to do something? They start to argue. That's what they do. And finally, you're just like, because I told you so, and you have no screen time tomorrow. But unfortunately, there's nobody who can say that to the world. And so that's why people argue is because they don't want to do it. Why don't they want to do it? It's because they don't understand that they're going to be affected. Whatever is at the top of their priority list, it is going to get hammered by climate change. Whether it's a city within a few feet of sea level that's going to be underwater, whether it's a drought that's going to devastate the economy of the region, whether it's wildfires that are out of control, they're going to get hit. They don't understand that. And the second thing they don't understand is there are solutions. There, you know, this is crazy. Through efficiency alone, just efficiency, we could cut our carbon emissions in half in the U.S. and we would save money. That's is how that the better strategy, though? Because as you're talking about this and talking about c- cities that are going to be underwater, I'm sitting here trying to think, okay, how does the guy across the street from me think? And I know that he's thinking, it's not going to happen in my lifetime. Where I live is not going to be underwater. And even some of the places on the coast of North Carolina, which are arguably some of the most vulnerable places in, the, in mainland U.S., probably won't be underwater in my lifetime either. And I, w- and I was sitting here thinking about the two situations that we just talked about, littering and how we change the mm-hmm. norm on littering mm-hmm. and recycling and how we change societal norms on recycling. Littering, don't litter because it's bad. Recycling, recycle more because it's more efficient and it's more helpful for the environment, et cetera, et cetera. But at no point during those littering campaigns or those please anti-littering campaigns or pro-recycling campaigns, did anybody tell me, if you don't do it, you're going to die. If you don't do it, we're all going to burn alive and drown in rising sea levels. Is there a point where some of it is less effective because it's seen I'm not saying it's not accurate, but it's seen by many people Mm -hmm. as hyperbole. We're going to all burn in wildfires. You know what? Probably not around here, not where I live, because it's so humid here that I can start a fire in my front yard and it goes out without me even want. I mean, I try to keep it going and it won't stay. That's not going to affect me here. And some of these things sound like hyperbole. Is it more effective when we don't try to scare people to death? Like, you're going to die if you don't get an electric car, or stop flying. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you can't tell people they're going to die from that because they're, they're likely not. But think about smoking. With smoking, there was definitely a component of if you keep on smoking, here's what your lungs you are going to look like. A lot of people still smoke TV. because they don't care or they don't believe it. A lot of people still don't get the COVID vaccine, even though they see you might actually die from this. They don't because I think a lot of people hear the hyperbole and assume, you know, it's like a crying wolf situation when you say that something is so bad. All I need to do is see two people get COVID and not die. And now all of a sudden I stop believing you. So is it more effective to use some of these arguments like it's more efficient? We'll save money if we go carbon neutral. We can do these things and pay down the debt. I don't know. You do the math for me. But I mean, are are there more effective arguments than the sea level is going to rise and we're all going to have to swim to work? (laughs) Well, there's definitely more effective (laughs) arguments than that, but it depends where you live. So for example, let's Mm -hmm. take Houston, right? 
So um, there was this guy who worked at my university who he had followed me on Facebook for a while. So he knew that I've been talking a lot about how heavy rain and flooding was increasing in Houston. So he and his family moved to Houston and he's like, okay, I know now that flood risk is increasing. So when we buy a house, we're not going to buy a house in the 100-year flood zone. We're not going to buy a house in the 500-year flood zone. We're not even going to buy a house in the 1,000-year flood zone. We're going to make sure whatever house we buy is outside the 1,000-year flood zone. So he did it. Flooded. And guess what? Hurricane Harvey. Hmm? Oh, we did. No, good. Didn't. Okay, good. Hurricane- <laughs> no, no. Hurricane Harvey arrived the next year. It flooded so much of Houston, and he was high and dry because he knew, and so he had prepared. So in some places, we see this stuff actually happening in real life today. And if you live in California, you see the wildfires, and you see you, you know yourself and your family breathing in that smoke, and wildfires in California are burning way more area than they have. Year by year by year, bigger, bigger, bigger fires, more smoke that sends people to the hospital. You know, especially if your kids have asthma. But there is nothing wrong with saying, look, you know what? My electric car is fast and quiet, and I don't have to go (laughs) fill it up at the pump during COVID. And in my book, actually, one of my favorite stories is from a guy called John. And John had a dad. And every time John went home, his dad was like, well, John, there's more polar bears now than there ever have been. So how can you say that they're endangered? And so John went back to university and he went and he got a PhD in cognitive psychology. Just to prove his dad wrong. <laughs> exactly. And he became a global expert. He really is. His name is John Cook. He has a great YouTube channel called Cranky Uncle that's all about COVID denial and vaccine denial and climate denial. And do you think that convinced his father? It did not. But then, so his father is a fiscal conservative. He likes to be shrewd and thrifty and save his money. He likes to also be very independent. So in the the rural area where his dad lived, there was a big rebate on solar panels. So his dad crunched the numbers and he's like, I can save a ton of money if I get these things. So, and and if the idiot government is going to subsidize me, I will take it. No, no, right. I'm with you. I got my tax credit on my electric car. (laughs) So John's dad gets the solar panels. He starts saving a ton of money. So he is even more shrewd, even more thrifty, even more independent than he was before. It reinforced his identity. Every month now, he's sending John his power bill. He's like, look how much money I saved, John. Fast forward a year. They're having dinner. His dad says, oh, global warming. I've always thought that was real. John falls off his chair. He's like, what are you talking about? His dad not only changed his mind, he didn't even remember he rejected it. What changed his mind? A really good solution. And, his, and, and, and not being forced into it, right? Because I've, mm-hmm. I've, we've said on this show a hundred times, it's not, it's not something we say ourselves. It's the truth. The, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And I believe that too often people on both sides try to use the same arguments over and over and over and over to make the point and assume that eventually they're going to hit somebody over the head hard enough that it's going to go in. It's not. You've got to have a different approach and and constant. Listen, arguing with family about politics isn't successful. I've not had any success in changing in 40 years in changing anybody in my family's mind about who to vote for until... I stopped talking about it, and they got there on their own because of something else, you know? And I think we all just sit stubbornly 
stuck in our views, and the more people push us on them, the less we change. And I love that that you come up with different ways to make the arguments, saving us a climate scientist case for hope and healing in a divided world. Um, Catherine Hayo, people should pick up the book. They get stories like John's, right? Um, and other arguments that are not necessarily just, I mean, you're going to have the facts in there, obviously, because um, they're important, but not just the same arguments. No one's going to be told they should stop flying tomorrow. No one's going to be told they can't eat have hamburgers anymore um, because it's killing uh, our, our, our planet. Um, but getting an op, you know, if, if, you, if you're someone who's listening and you're having these same arguments, um, you know, pick up Saving Us. It's a good opportunity uh, to, to try to not only hear some of the things that you already know a little bit about, but hear them from an expert, you know, um, <laughs> but also learn different ways to make some of these arguments and change people's minds and convince them or even help them change their own mind a little bit, right? Um, yes. You know, that's, that's yes. sort of the goal and, and stop. Because fighting doesn't work. But, Catherine, I mean, I'm fascinated by it only because I don't think it's been talked about, at least not in my life, in a measured way. I have have spoken about climate change only a few times, and it's usually with people who are so... What's the word? I don't want to use the word militant, but I can't think of another one right now. So, uh, dog, thank you. Let me write that down. I'm going to use that. That's a... $10 $10 word for next week's episode, too. Um, <laughs> people, I'll send you, you. <laughs> um, people who are so dogmatic about it that it becomes difficult to have a conversation with them about it. So I appreciate you having one about it without, you know, making me feel stupid because I think a lot of people believe it's going on, know it's happening, but don't necessarily understand the urgency for right now. Um, and don't want to be made to feel guilty when they ask a question um, or e- express some, you know, self-admitted ignorance like I have here. <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, and thank you for the book. Again, if you're listening, say, we'll put it in our show notes too. Saving Us, A Climate Scientist Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. Catherine, hey ho, how can we find you on social media? Well, you can find me everywhere because my last name is hard yes. to forget. Just think of the Ramones, the Lumineers, and Snow White and the Seven <laughs> but Dwarfs. Just, but Catherine it's spelled H A Y H O E. And and it is. is it your is your Twitter handle your name? It's K Hayho. And on Instagram, it's Catherine Hayho. On Facebook, it's Catherine Hayho. And on TikTok, it's Dr. Oh, Catherine. Oh, we got to check out your TikTok. I expect to see some dancing. Um, Catherine Hayho, how the heck are we going to get along? We're going to get along because you know what? More unites us than divides us. We have more in common than what we're arguing over. When it all comes down to it, we all want a better future for us, for our kids, for everyone and everything that we love. That's why I'm fighting for climate change. That's why I'm fighting for a better future. And that's why all of us care.